doctor should look at it as soon as possible. It is the way in which we propagate our species. Please demonstrate how this is accomplished. So, what's next? Welcome to Casual Trek, a Star Trek recap and ranking podcast. I'm Charlie Etheridge Nunn, a writer and an X-Men Evolution fan, even though, criminally, it is not on any UK streaming platform. Hi, I'm Miles Reed Lobato. I am a writer, and in terms of Western cartoons... I probably have to also be an X-Men Evolution fan, but I can get it on the horrendous monopoly of Disney+. Plus. If we're talking about uh, Japanese cartoons, I am a lover of Mobile Suit Gundam. Really? I hadn't heard this about you before. No, it's a very subtle, very subtle thing. Yeah, so I have the Disney Channel Plus app, and we don't have X-Men Evolution. It's shocking. Does it have X-Men 92? Of course it has X-Men 92. It only has X-Men 92. So not even Wolverine and the X-Men? Nah. Wow. Yeah, 92's the only... Like, I don't resent X-Men 92. It's fine. But when it is the driving force for every incarnation or anything like that, it's it chafes one slightly. So yeah, anyway. Actually, I'm going to change my answer from X-Men Evolution to probably Star Wars Rebels. Oh, okay. I... I think I made it through one season of that, possibly half a season, and it felt like something that was good, but with room to go. It builds. It you know it 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 builds. It's like with Clone Wars. Like Clone Wars starts kind of eh, and then really builds to um to really really good, amazingly good. We're just going to do an episode homaging the third man, which is brilliant, and then go back down to really good. So, yeah, that feels like that's going to be very much the theme for today. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what we do is each episode, we watch stories from three different Star Trek shows, and we rank them on a big list of best to worst. We both love Star Trek, but it's far from our first fandom which makes us the ultimate objective voices on such a task. This time, we're going to be going boldly into the animated shows. As it turns out, there's enough for us to take an episode from three whole different shows. Who'd have thought that'd be a thing? And certainly before, you know, what, five years ago or so, you'd never go, oh yes, the many Star Trek animated shows. The numerous. Yeah. The plural. Exactly, yes. So before we go on, what non-Star Trek thing have you been animated about since we last spoke? Well, you know, as much as I would like to go on about the new entry in the Mobile Suit Gundam franchise, Mobile Suit Gundam, The Witch from Mercury, <laughs> I see I can only beg your patience enough talking about Gundam. So I'm going to talk about a film I saw, which was Halloween Ends. Oh. Which is the final entry of the current Blumhouse trilogy of Halloween films starring Jamie Lee Curtis. Because let's be honest, like this is Halloween has a more screwed up timeline and chronology than than Star Trek. It's rebooted itself at least three separate times. And this current film, Halloween Ends, is like the last of the trilogy from the 2018 Halloween film, Halloween Kills, and now Halloween Ends. It's been very controversial on Twitter because you either like it or you hate it. And I have been called an artsy fucking douche from someone who said anyone who likes Halloween ends is one of those people who's fascinated by watching paint dry. I 
responded maturely by quoting him in a photo of me literally watching my wall. Oh, good. It was a good film. I can see why people don't like it because it does try and do something different. It's not just Michael Myers goes on yet another kill spree, which we've seen many, many Halloween films. And I feel kind of kind of goes like a Stephen King it kind of direction where Michael's almost a malevolent evil, which is influenced in this small town America. The ending though made the audience I was in and myself burst out laughing because it was just an, uh, an idea, an image, which really need to be reconsidered because it just felt more comedic than anything else. And after some very emotionally powerful moments recently and earlier in the film, it really felt like the wrong kind of mood switch. Oh dear. I saw the first two Halloweens when I was told I'm not a proper scary movie fan if I've not seen the original Halloweens. So borrowed the first two on VHS, because I'm old. Was it the double VHS? No. When it has both films on one... Okay, because I had that as a kid, but the quality was terrible, and because Halloween is a film which has a lot of very dark lighting, you can't see shit in that film. I was so glad when Mm -hmm. I got it on DVD and can go, oh, so this is what's happening when all these people are screaming. I think that might have been a, a general issue with VHS release or something for it because I remember thinking this is incredibly dark. I don't know if it was the terrible pan and scan like television or the ancient VHS tapes that I borrowed from my friend Goff John or what. But um, yeah, it, it was good, but also there was a lot that wasn't easily visible. Was Goff John the guy who worked in the comic shop who had the logo of the Invisibles tattooed on his arm? That's him, yes. Yeah, he's actually going by his original name of Gordon these days. And uh, I was called in to the shop on the assumption that there had been a burglar because I was the one who <laughs> lived nearest. And it turned out to have been him having gone in after a night out drinking to just fall asleep on the shop floor. And one of the neighbours phoned my boss up and said, I think you've got a burglar. <laughs> Was this back in the day or when Dave's was actually still alive or was this back when, yeah. it, was, when it was still... St- what? Oh, okay, wow, yeah. G- Gordon, his actual name was Gordon. Yep. Yeah, Goff Gordon doesn't work. No, no, he went with John because it was more... Yeah, it was less Gordon-y. Yeah, Goff Gordon just sounds like a member of the Young Conservatives. Oh, no. No offence to Goff John, but Goff Gordon, I get it. Yeah. Yeah, but in my in my mind and my heart, he will always be Goff John. So, what non Star Trek thing have you consumed this week? So, originally, I was I was rummaging around in the old mind canal, hoping to find something animated for this animated episode, and I've gone almost the exact opposite way round for it. And I've been enjoying the video game Hitman. Ooh, yeah. Now I tried Bloodborne, and I may go back to it one day, and. I I find it's the kind of thing that I get very impatient with and very I find it very difficult to master in very short bursts over, you know, once a fortnight for maybe an hour, maybe two hours. With my impaired reaction time and my terrible short-term memory, that's just not going to happen. However, Hitman, Hitman's been a real joy. <laughs> it's been... Like, the level of creativity that you can put into a game of Hitman, I have really grown to appreciate. And originally, this was mostly because my partner and I, when we've 
had a short amount of time, but not much like that we want to to watch. Like we don't want to get into anything big. We'd watch yeah. um, some outside Xbox videos, and they've done hundreds on Hitman, often showing different ways that three of them are trying to approach a kill. And for me, I'm not a fan of the idea that there's one best way for this sort of thing. You know, you have to have this optimal fashion. But watching them mess up, watching them adapt to things going awry, watching how much you can actually get away with, got me going, oh, I I have Hitman 1 from Games With Gold. So I started playing on that, started enjoying it. And in the matter of a week and a half, I think I've managed to get cheap secondhand copies of Hitman 2 and 3 so now I, I have the whole shebang and it's the kind of thing where sometimes you can come up with a, incredible Machiavellian plots. Sometimes you go, I'm halfway through this plot, but that guy's on his own and I've got a screwdriver. But <laughs> it just wants to be in his head. So I'm just going to fling it. And my word, my the screwdriver has become my weapon of choice at this point. <laughs> So yeah, it's been good fun. I'm curious to see how I develop with it because already I'm starting to see opportunities a bit better for for creative murders. But I'm also not at the point where I'm going around a real place in the real world and going, if I was a hitman, how would I murder a person here? So I've not gone too far yet. Charlie? A crazy person wandering around Brighton in a long coat carrying a screwdriver threateningly is Tuesday. I mean, that's just London Road. Yeah, that's this level. I don't know. Like, the level at least feels a bit more jovial than that, you know, a bit more kind of... of a, D- despite, a, the, despite all the cat. Yeah, yeah. Um, you, you're kind of... your clusters of, of man with dog and, you know, your kind of small fires and DJ setup that's been kind of... I don't know where they keep it, but it's appeared. You know, again, there's a party atmosphere to that, even if it's not one you would really want to get too near to. But London Road, if you want a man shouting angrily at a bucket for taking his cigarettes, you're on the right track. Anyway, this is not a London Road <laughs> podcast. Do, do you know where you're not going to find a man uh, shouting at a bucket for stealing his cigarettes? Where? Star Trek, the animated series. Hooray! Yes! Well... <laughs> That's a, a wonderful segue, Mars. So, yeah, with that in mind, our first episode of the night is Star Trek, the animated series, season one, episode one, Beyond the Farthest Star. And I had a bit of worry that this was going to be like the original series where all the episodes were aired out of order and produced in different orders and all of that. But then I realized I'd accidentally just been looking at season two of the animated series instead. So I'm pretty sure we've both seen the same episode, but it's the right one here. Beyond the Father's Star aired on the 8th of September 1973. It was written by Samuel A. People. Peoples. 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 I think it was Peoples. Yeah, I've realised after the last episode how much autocorrect messes with things when I'm writing these notes on an iPad. So yeah, I'm pretty sure it was written by Samuel A. Peoples, directed by Hal Sutherland. The UK and US number one hits were, for my side of the pond, Donny Osmond with Young Love slash A Million to One. And (laughs) on your side, it was Marvin Gaye with 
let's get it on. Okay, I think that from my side, I think we win. Yeah. If, my, if we ask my mum, I think Donny Osmond would win. Don't know if I've ever actually heard of Donny Osmond. I've only known of him through comedy bits from old comedians. Yeah. But even so, I'm pretty sure Marvin Gaye has stood for test of time far more with Let's Get It On than anything Donny Osmond's done. This feels shockingly early in the episode after the last couple of episodes that we've had and the sheer weight of distractions that we've uh, put ourselves through. That's Marvin Gaye said. Let's get it on. Let's get it on. So uh, you've got five minutes to recap us the Star Trek animated series first episode starting now. Star charting. The Enterprise is charting the uncharted regions of uncharted unchartedness while investigating some strange radio signals when they nearly get pulled into a dead star, which almost pulls them to their death through hypergravity. They manage to escape by planning a slingshot effect to safely nudge them into an orbit and not crashing. If Chekhov were here, and Chekhov is not here, we would call this Chekhov slingshot effect. Deciding to explore further, we got like 20 minutes of episode to fill after all, they discover a giant spaceship, which looks more like a series of large insect hives than anything construct that we usually see in Star Trek. Quick, Kirk, Spock, Bones, Scotty, put on your ready break belts. We've got we're gonna beam into a vacuum of space. Every pod has been burst open from the inside. Spock concluding that this was definitely an inside job and the crew do it did it themselves. While exploring and while Scotty's kind of like geeking out about how this metal was more spun than forged. Um, they feel something is watching them. Entering a secondary location, you never enter a second location. They find this new room, which has blocked their phases and communicators. Spock thinks that this room was intentionally jerry-rigged to protect the people of this ship while they blew open the ship. As they're investigating, this force starts banging on the door trying to break in and the equipment flashes and we see this octopus headed alien warning of danger in this really kind of slowed down voice and that they actually drew the ship into the orbit of the dead star to stop this this entity from escaping to other ships at this point everything starts blowing up and the away team kirk it the hell out so they transport back oh turns out when they when they transported back to the enterprise they brought basically the color out of space with them. Kirk then body slams the poor guy who's on transporter duty to try and beam the alien back out into space, but it's too late. And now the ship is now being possessed by the alien entity. Hiding on the bridge, the plan is to find a way out. Kirk orders Scotty to go down to engineering and make sure the self-destruct system is primed and ready. And to make sure that this creature ain't escaping. While they're doing this, parts of the ship's life support system starts shutting down around them, forcing more people to get on their ready break belts. Uh, the ready break belt is actually a life support belt, which makes a glowing halo effect. It's like a highlighter around them. Yeah, because the show can't afford to animate people in spacesuits. Where was I in the notes? Um, the ship's phases come online by themselves and blow up the alien ship. The alien forces slowly and but surely learning how to control the ship by itself. Uh, an alien voice starts to speak out over the sound system, telling them to to kind of just surrender and give up, and starts shooting at the bridge crew with this defense system, which has never been seen before and never been seen again, which is a disco ball, which shoots phasers. And they should bring that back. 
and they should bring that back. Kirk uses his life support belt and throws it onto the control console in order to prevent the alien force from reaching navigations. And then Kirk rolls out of the way, which is an incredible bit of animation for a show which is lacking in animation. So now they can control the ship, but they control nothing else. Kirk asks Spock if he can calculate a slingshot effect without using the computer. Thankfully, this is what Spock does in his free time. So like he's already planned it out. And they send the Enterprise hurtling towards the planet, towards the dead star. The, ent- the entity realizes that Kirk and the crew would rather die than let themselves be enslaved. And the entity promptly jumps from the Enterprise to the dead star, at which point they use the slingshot effect to slingshot around the dead star and go off hurtling safely away to the entity, which is now imprisoned as part of a dead star, crying and pleading for help. The Enterprise crew decide for once to not do a Starfleet and just leave the entity forever alone beyond the farthest star. Ooh, with two seconds to spare. Oh! Oh yes. Yeah, I knew this was going to be a close one with um with these. But yeah, that's yeah, they they really don't do a Starfleet with that, don't they? They don't. <laughs> yeah. Uh <laughs> oops. I mean at that point, like it it was a bit of a whiner. The um Yeah. Miles. Chekhov's had a, a bit of a makeover in this. Yeah, like Chekhov, Chekhov is briefly a guy in a red uniform and black hair, and then next time you look back, he is this, uh, he is this free-armed alien dude. Yeah, now that free-armed alien dude gets no lines in this, and is pretty much just stationary there. But he's a thing in this series, isn't he? he he's not a thing. He's a person. Hmm. Sure. Yes. Um. Yeah, as as much as anyone who's lower ranked. Charlie, don't be space racist. Okay, learn from from trips mistakes. Do a Starfleet, don't do a trip. Of course. So don't do a Bacula. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I don't want that to be what Bacula's associated with. He always seems so nice. <laughs> yeah, but yeah. So why why wasn't there a Chekhov? Um, because. They can only afford so many people. Oh. And originally, they weren't even going to have uh, Nichelle Nichols as Uhura. But Leonard Nimoy was just like, okay, no Uhura, no Spock. Because, ah. you know, apparently he was like, uh, but like the guy who's going to play Bester in Babylon 5, yeah, sod him. Yeah. Sadly. But yeah, I, you know, like, obviously, because there's a lot of. I've what This is like my most viewed Star Trek show. Because I, I used I, I watched this when I was a kid. It's like one of my earlier like regular Star Trek experiences because they had this on Blockbuster video and it used to get aired like at six AM on like Sky One or like on BBC two and like the ten, eleven o'clock slot during summer holidays. So I've watched this show a lot. It somehow completely missed me. The um the sort of times that I would tend to watch a Star Trek were that kind of mid-morning Sunday or early evening kind of weekday sort of thing. Yeah. So, yeah, um, it's mostly been seen by me in Brighton's open market in a, a second-hand DVD place in a weird 
like bright white and see-through orange clam shell yeah yeah one that no one has ever bought and that i keep i kept thinking i would have to because it, it wasn't on paramount plus over here luckily netflix had it so that copy will remain unsold in that place until i assume the heat death of the universe yeah you never know so yeah i I got a couple of Strange New Worlds Episode 2 vibes early on when it was like, oh, it's weird alien entity. Is it like, what's it trying to do? What's it trying to kind of like almost trying to communicate with this very alien, very different thing? Especially, you know, you got to play with a giant seaweed looking spaceship and aliens that look weird. The ship looks cool. Mm. Like... I as much as I will knock as a kid who grew up on He-Man and Brave Star, I will knock their animation quality, but they know how to paint a background. Yeah. Like they know how to paint like a landscape and the spaceship looks alien. I really don't want to say, you know, despite the fact I said the color out of space, hmm. I really don't want to have to go to Lovecraft well too many times when talking about this episode. No, I mean the the entity by the end I felt a bit sorry for it, but at the same time, it was a bit of a whiner. It was very much like, oh, this is my ship now, and getting very fussy and lasering everyone, as you say, with the disco ball laser of doom. I love Kirk body slamming the guy out of the way. <laughs> like, when I was I was watching it last night, and I, this sort of happened, it was just like, I, I just couldn't help but laugh hysterically, because for a show which has so little animation... Mm. that was an intentional choice it's like kirk just can't have you we can't just show the guy doing it because that won't cost money we need to show what a rugged man of action kirk is by basically just punching his own officer in the face like out away kirk's doing this baby is it one of those things where that's literally the only way he has of interacting in maybe quite possibly it's the only way to have a displaying character because like with the exception of like you know we get to see scotty be an engineer and we get to see Spock be really clever, but all the other characters just have no character beats. Mm. They, you can just kind of chop and change of any kind of generic space cartoon, and like you could, you could just put the same episode and put it in an as an episode of Ulysses Thirty One. You wouldn't have changed much, except like instead of a tel instead of the teleport guy, I don't know, Ulysses would have body checked his own son. Or that bloody robot. Yeah, ideally the robot. <laughs> but yeah, the other thing I realised was um, I knew that they reused a lot of similar animation beats. Like them kind of running at the screen. Like they're kind of almost, I don't know, something weird going on with the elbows. They're power walking. Yeah, I, I didn't expect the silhouettes. Like the weird, tiny, little, so oh. nondescript you couldn't <laughs> tell what they are sort of silhouettes that was impressive is that a regular it, feature it is this show is cheap mm. like this show makes like 60s who look like star wars at times amazing it, in and like so yeah you get a lot of like you will get like a lot of background like sh silhouette shots of people walking because we can't afford to color in like clothes you do get some you know you you will see kirk and spock doing the run yeah. Like a couple of times an episode. Like, you know, it is the the patented I need to use the bathroom now. 
Oh, God. Run. Yeah, well, sometimes needs must and all that. Yeah. Like, this cartoonness always makes me feel like, feel, you know, I don't know if you have this with you, when a show you watched in a childhood makes you think about the time you watched it. This always feels like something you watch at 6 a.m. when everyone else in the house is asleep and you're just in the living room watching this weird show with everything with no lights on, flames turned down really low so you don't wake up your parents and you just kind of feel isolated, which kind of really helps with this episode, which is, you know, out in deep space on this weird ship where everything is dead. It does feel quite nice and out of the way. And like, yeah, yeah they are... It, they feel far from Starfleet in this one, you know. It feels interestingly isolated, which which works with the name. And, um, yeah, and the whole Dead Star thing, which uh, was also kind of fun. And means somewhere out there, there is this entity still just trapped in a dead star. So, where do you think it goes in the list? Yeah, so, we have a list. It's it's very exciting, mainly because it's in a spreadsheet, and I have a deep romantic love of spreadsheets. On the number one spot, we still have Deep Space Nine, Episodes 1 and 2, Emissary. And right down at the bottom, at number 18, we have Enterprise, Episodes 1 and 2, Broken Bow. This is a status quo that's been the case since our first two episodes of Casual Trek. And we've got a lot more entries in between. And to be honest, this was one of those episodes that isn't objectionable. It's not like the Thor or Broken Bow, but it's at the same time, it's not it's not good. It's just it it kind of fits that sort of meh sort of space. I I honestly I'm looking at the list. Mm-hmm. I think the highest episode I could quite happily rank it above would probably be Cat's Paw, which is cu- currently skulking around with its uh, arms folded at number 12. Okay, so I was also looking at Cat's Paw, but almost the other way, and I know, I know from last episode, there's a kind of deep internal want of you to make Cat's Paw episode 13, which is <laughs> where it would go, being as it's currently in spot number 12. <laughs> Personally, though, I would so readily watch Cat's Paw over this. Like, if we're talking, we've got a TV tuned somehow with just two things on, and it's been a long day at work, and I'm watching an episode of Star Trek. If it's Cat's Paw or Beyond the Farthest Star, it's it's got to be Cat's Paw. Like, it's definitely not better than Matter of Honor. It's... God, would that make this better than Encounter at Farpoint? That's the um, other issue. <laughs> honestly, yes. I would say this is better Encounter at Farpoint because, okay, Encounter at Farpoint has everyone just talking in their character bios. This has no one displaying any character <laughs> and has. <laughs> okay. And has, and has Kirk rugby tackling a dude for no good reason. So, yeah, this is it. We This is better than Encounter at Farpoint. Oh, my word. It does have the merit of being, what, about a third the length of Encounter at Farpoint, at least. Yup. There is no philosophizing. There is no quoting of Shakespeare. There is no Patrick Stewart just staring at the camera going, this is my career. 
This is my career. Gone. Like dust in the wind. Oh, see, I am... Wind. I'm very much... I'm very much looking forward to the point where Patrick Stewart breaks, where he's given up on that and becomes... Uh, Jean Lima Picard, you know. See, at the same time, this doesn't have anyone running around spraying, I don't know, Arax pheromones to get the ent- to chase the entity away. Not yet. <laughs> okay, I'm willing to say better than Encounter at Farpoint. I'm still unconvinced about Cat's Paw. Like it doesn't have the Elder God clangers or uh, or the weird cat, that kind See, of thing, right? <laughs> Speaking of weird cats, um, Willie, my own cat, is kind of skulking around uh, my chair. So I think I'm going to have to say this is worse than Cat's Paw. Otherwise, okay. he might just throw up my carpet. Oh, dear. Yeah, best not to encourage that kind of thing. Yeah, because as we all know, Cat's Paw is my cat's current favorite episode of the list. Yes. And yeah. he had a list, which was com- a big Trek list, comprised of episodes my cat likes. It's 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 just cats it's cats port all the way down. It's just that one. I might have to add that as a tab to the spreadsheet. We'll see. We'll see if there's a second entry at some point. But that means at place number thirteen, we have our first animated episode with Beyond the Farthest Star. Excellent. So, so episode two of today's selection is Star Trek Lower Decks. And this is Season 1, Episode 1, titled Second Contact. Oh. Oh, God. Sorry. Oh, God, I've uh, I've already gone over. Yep. Yep. Sorry. (laughs) I was just setting my alarm and making sure that I've got the red alert sound this time. Uh, Okay. So this aired on the 6th of August, 2020. It was written by Mike McMahon and directed by Barry J. Kelly. The UK and US number one hits... I meant to listen to before we started the episode because I have no idea what either of these are. Um, the UK had Joel Corey, Head and Heart, and US had The Baby, featuring Roddy Rich with Rockstar. Miles, any clue? Those are, those are words. Those are just words. They're words. Okay, we will carry they're, they're on. They're words and names. They're yeah. vague. Pic- they're vague verbal pictograms. Yeah. So uh, we're old. And uh, yeah, I'm... I I'm, I I try to you know, despite the fact that I do, I I spend a lot of time working with the the youth culture. I am not, as the kids say, lit. Yeah, I figured that as someone who works in in shops and such, there'd be music or radio or something on, and that you might have slightly more knowledge than me of this. No, because whenever we had, we could choose playlists at the coffee franchise, which should not be named ah. anymore, and it was just like. 80s it was either 80s or jazz and i usually chose jazz to piss off everyone else that is a cruel move like you know i like i had i had someone who didn't like jazz and i would i would repeat the line from the mighty boosh you fear jazz you fear its lack of you fear its lack of shapes oh no it's hard oh no it's smooth oh no because i'm i'm that level of hipster terrible i'm a mighty boosh quoting hipster oh my god the worst kind Right, anyway, on that distressing note for your colleagues, and I hope they're doing a lot better, unfortunately, if they're still working in that coffee shop. No, they're not. It's great. Oh. It's kind of great. Anyway. On that schadenfreude filled note, let's start. 
No, 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 wait. Oh. Let's get it on. So, Lower Decks. We start off with a mission statement from one Brad Boimler, giving us a rundown of what it's like being the administrators who come along after the sexy, dramatic first contact scenarios. That's what he's into. That's what the Cerritos is into. Then we actually see him in a cupboard on his own, giving a speech to himself before he's caught by Beckett Mariner. She immediately does her best to represent my fears for what this cartoon was going to be like post-Family Guy by darting around like Woody Woodpecker fucking about with references. Hey, do you know Romulan whiskey? Do you know what a Batleff is? That's as good as being funny, isn't it? So, opening credits happen. And it's all very nice, very Trek, mostly the ship running away from things and getting partially eaten. And uh, we luckily move on to someone else with Devana Tendi, who's very excited to be here and ignores how jaded everyone else seems to be about, you know, being a lower decks worker. She reports to Boimler, who's losing a fight against a broken replicator. And Mariner decides to come along and join the two of them having a bit of a tour of the ship. Uh, the cast gets rounded out with Sam Rutherford, who was injured recently, has a Vulcan cybernetic implant, which is glitching out and playing with his emotions and uh, lowering things like his ability to process freaking out that he's got a date with another Ensign, uh, Ensign Barnes. Luckily, Mariner fixes that and he starts freaking out to an appropriate level. Down on the planet Galar, which I believe is an Australian insult, Commander Ransom is helping arrange things with the Galadonians when he's stung on the neck by an insect. More on that shortly. Boimler gets called in by Captain Freeman, who wants him to spy on Mariner and report back anything that she's done that's not up to board, that's, you know, suspicious or anything like that. And then we split the team. So Boimler and Mariner head down to the planet to help with any final bits of second contact, setting up equipment, that sort of thing, and the others up on the Cerritos. Boimler thinks Mariner's doing some secret arms trades, and she's actually doing secret farming equipment trades. But there's no time to process that yet, because Big Spider! Oh no! Up on the Cerritos, the date between Rutherford and Barnes gets wrecked when Ransom turns into a highly infectious rage zombie. Even so, they still kind of treat it like it's a date, as this isn't Starfleet's first rage zombie outbreak by a long shot. Boimler and Mariner on the planet hide in a tree using their clothes as decoys for the giant spider, and Boimler can't really catch a break. His uniform's destroyed, and he's attacked by the spider anyway. Uh, The Galadonian farmers reveal that the spiders are herbivore and just gumming him i guess it'll upset the milk yeah yeah exactly uh after all of that he's left naked hurt and covered in purple goo the date slash rage zombie outbreak is going fairly well until rutherford sees a malfunctioning door and is more fascinated with that than the dramatic kiss he's just had with barnes oh well Tendi is introduced to her supervisor, who's a rage zombie, and while she's trying to be polite, he keeps vomiting black ichor on her, and she ends up having to hold the exposed heart of another member of the crew, which is horrifying in the moment, but kind of fun anyway. The stories collide when the away team beam back up, see everything going awry, and Dr. Tana sees the goo on Boimler. She uses that to make a cure, and ultimately all the credit is given to the Upper Decks folks. 
Boimler, despite all of this, or possibly because of all of this, he doesn't squill to Freeman about the secret farming equipment deals Mariner was doing. And back in the um, 10 forward kind of canteen area, Mariner decides she's going to be his mentor. And then she's right back to Woody Woodpecker reference giving mode. Again, this is the same as comedy, isn't it? We've all seen Family Guy. We know what that's like. The end. Charlie, I don't believe it. What? I don't believe it. You did it with 12 seconds. No, no you oh did it with 12 seconds to spare. I underran. There you go. Oh, Calais! <laughs> oh, Excelsior! <laughs> oh my word! They said it couldn't be done. I knew it. As your mentor in the situation, I knew you could do it. Oof. So I have a question for you. Yeah. Briefly, what is the worst date or date call off you've ever had? Um, God, that's difficult because I've had a lot that were just damp squibs or just literally no call, no show kind of things where I was obviously naive and desperate enough. I hung around the same place where I was supposed to meet the person for maybe an hour, maybe two, going, did I get the right time? And then never heard from them again. I once had someone the night before get drunk and end up on a train to Sheffield. (laughs) This was not in Brighton. This was in High Wycombe when I was at uni. Oh, wow. Yeah. Huh. Oh, actually, yeah. I have a relationship (laughs) that kind of ended in in abrupt ghosting kind of thing, actually, rather than just a date. I had someone disappear with 50 quid and a bunch of Buffy videos. (laughs) Wow. Yeah, yeah. And it it exacerbates, it kind of added to the need to upgrade to DVD. But um, yeah, that was, that was the time I dated a busker. And um, yeah, it it wasn't great. Um, No. Anyway, (laughs) more on, on Lower Decks. I forgot, given I love Lower Decks at the moment, I have been watching season three and really enjoying it. This episode brought me right back to the reason I didn't watch it until maybe halfway through season two. I saw the the look, the style, and while it's not got the the cheapness of the animated series, it's got that kind of big, round eyes, American dad, family guy kind of look that just makes... Because of Mike McMahon, I can't help but think of Rick and Morty. And so Mm. going by all the trailers, kind of like going how the characters are presented, I was really worried that this show was, I am not a fan of Rick and Morty. I've, I've tried, like it's, it's fine. I think sometimes I think the writers of earlier Rick and Morty and definitely the fans of Rick and Morty are a bit up their own ass about how good and how deep Rick and Morty is. Yeah. There's my hot button topic. So I was worried that this was going to be the same. Like, this is going to be a much more cynical show where Mariner's going to be shown to be more in the right and stuff. He's going to be shown in the wrong. And the first episode does have some of that. But I feel like from the second episode onwards, the show really is a lot better than how it's presented here. Yeah. Now, I'm more pro Rick and Morty than I am pro Seth MacFarlane kind of 
uh, cartoons. Like those, I find um, like just the lowest form of comedy. Again, references yeah. are the same as making a joke, kind of thing. It's the Ernest Klein theory of literature. If I reference The Last Starfighter enough, is my novel ripping off The Last Starfighter any good? The answer, no. No. No, it is not. I've realized, actually, when I first got Disney+, Plus, I started watching The Simpsons because I realized I'd stopped watching around season eight or nine when I was younger. And there was a lot there, and I heard it got bad. And the morbid part of me kind of wanted to see when it died you know inside and watching it i think we gave up around 15 or so season wise and it's a rapid drop off before it becomes mm. the kind of thing that would have that i've realized you also get in your family guys that kind of thing where it, there's less of a story and more just a bunch of skits that look a bit like a story don't really have a through line or anything like that, and just get a bit tedious. But I think that's just generally been a problem with a lot of comedy um, over the last like few decades. Definitely since Friends and maybe like your Seinfeld, when you have your shows which really aren't about anything, but it's they're essentially characters who get increasingly more mean spirited, just exchanging witty quips back and forth and no actual situation in the situational comedy did watching this hmm. no you, you your face is kind of like either regenerating like in doctor who or you're making just face shapes okay so i'm gonna have to push back a little with things like seinfeld in that respect because there is at least there are stories and through lines and yeah, sure, the people are mean, and the the theory is that it's a show about nothing, but we all know that there's the kind of lie about that. Like, a lot is about extremely minor petty grievances, but um, compared to a lot of those kind of your family guy type shows, it hmm. at least feels like there's a coherent thing. And it, it yeah. isn't reliant on going, hey, you liked Mr. T. Do you remember when Mr. T rapped? Well, we're doing a bit about that. And then we'll move rapidly on to something else and just be, I don't know, fairly mean-spirited. So with this, I did want to go on after seeing episode one because it felt like it was localized to Mariner at the start and end. And I don't know if those were written separately to the rest as far as the timeline of what the writer did, or if they just calmed the fuck down with it, because they still refer to a lot of events in Star Trek more than I would expect your average person in the world to. The references get a lot, but I feel they kind of either they get better at it, or like I'm lizard brain enough to go, I remember that reference, <laughs> which is hypocritical of me, because I will be, I'm usually the first in line to like complain about when things do that um yeah note this is the one star trek show i watch regularly with my wife rihanna because like she's this has been her gateway this is her star trek gateway drug mm. i think because she will be yeah because it's honestly what this reminds me of is red dwarf because it's a sci-fi show which 
uses like the workplace comedy and like the flat share comedy and then just bump it into like a space shown into like a sci-fi narrative and I would say Red Dwarf in like its prime of like the first like five seasons is not only some of the best comedy writing but also some of the best SF writing and I will you know say this unabashedly I think that Chris Barry as Arnold Judas Rimmer might be one of the most fascinatingly multifaceted characters that science fiction TV has ever given us. Oh God, he's someone you can pity and empathize with and see some of yourself in the petty parts of, but also hate with every part of your body. Like he's a pathetic smeghead, but like at the same time, yeah, he's a pathetic smeghead, but you also see why he's a pathetic smeghead and why he can't escape from his pathetic smegheadness. And again, like this, this first episode feels like a version of Red Dwarf we would have gotten if Rimmer was the lead character and Lister was his sitcom nemesis and not the other way around. Yeah, it's a, a very basic, petty kind of point with this sort of story, this sort of narrative. But having Boimler as the fun hating nerd and Mariner as the, the wacky, kooky one who gets in scrapes is at least a more interesting thing than if you had the guy being the wacky one who gets in scrapes yeah. with a woman tutting all the time. Because, weirdly enough, we've seen that for decades already with yeah. that kind of attitude towards the roles. Like, it, this gets, you know, Lower Decks gets so much better and develops the characters in really fascinating ways and still manages to keep like a a fun plot going sadly my favorite character of my favorite side character of Shax doesn't get enough to do mm. but then he hasn't met rutherford who out of the four might be my favorite character because i love like Shax calling rutherford baby bear i never get tired of his nickname being baby bear or just <laughs> Shax being like this homicidal psychopath who loves his job but you see that all through all of this world presented in Lower Decks. Even with Mariner, like, she hates a lot of what she has to do and hates a lot of the job, but she is good and good at it and knows it. While, you know, people like Boimler and Tendi are knowledgeable and excited about even the mundane Starfleet stuff, even if they're not experienced or good. And then the people in charge, even if they're you know, it chafes slightly that they take for credit because that was inevitably going to happen. But the the mundanity of, oh yeah, we've got a rage zombie outbreak isn't met with the kind of um, the lack of buy-in that you get from, say, a Deadpool who who go, yeah. who nope out of the tone of the story. Like, you know? here is, I think, my one consistent problem with comedy and that's like in in shows and definitely in comedic movies is that along the way the idea that there are stakes have disappeared because you know it's a comedy film you don't have to care about the you don't have to care about stakes it's all about having some people from second city just doing like unrehearsed improv bits for five minutes and we'll just kind of write a film around it whereas you've got films like ghostbusters where there are stakes and there are serious things going on but there are still jokes and i think this is kind of where 
how we like we've talked about in Star Trek how like they mutate in, like they mutate into spiders and lemurs, and that's just Tuesday yeah. for them. Worf turns into Nathan, kills a guy. That's just Tuesday for them. This is a world where like all that happens, but because they live and they know because they're slightly aware they live in the Star Trek universe. This is just another. This is just clock in rage zombie virus. Oh man, I hope this is bad. I really hope it doesn't screw up my date tonight. Yeah, and that's that is a fascinating part of it. Like the stakes in the show, I feel never get treated as unimportant. Like the stakes are real. It's just how the characters react is where the comedy comes from, and when the characters are put into peril. It does feel like they're put into peril. Hmm. And yeah, we'll see that done more as we dig into more lower decks and better as well. As this feels yeah. very much like a proof of concept at this point. This, this is definitely your. We wrote the pilot first before we got mm. a show, a series order. Yeah, and I, I think it's probably going to end up being one of the lowest Lower Decks episodes. And I know you've had issues with one of the recent ones, but we will discuss that when it comes time. But yeah, as far as this one goes, it's um, it's interesting looking at it in comparison with the list, because we've got some real... I think it should go on number 12. I think it should go on number 12. What is it with you and the number 12? <laughs> <laughs> is it because Catspaw is still currently at number 12? I was going to say. Yes. I think. Yes. <laughs> I think it's oddly comparable to a matter of honor where you get the Ooh. Riker work experience, where you get the kind of bacteria fuck up and having to having to amend it there. And it's that thing of, is it better than that? Like, I'm fine saying, okay, this is better than Cat's Paw, because both are funny, both in very different ways. Yeah. I think I would prefer Cat's Paw just slightly, but I've I've become very enamoured of the mystical space bullshit side of Star Trek. So I get that that's just me compared to our, our objective list here. So yeah, is this better or worse than Riker's work experience experience? I I think it's slightly worse than Riker's work experience experience mm. because there is some really kind of fast there is some good world building and there is some there is some nice fish out of water. Now if yeah. we'd seen the lower decks Klingon work experience, that would probably be like um comedic gold. Oh god, yeah. Okay. But at you know, at the same time, you, you do have um Riker being offered to be breastfed by a, a lady Klingon and Riker just basically going, yeah, I'm down. I'm down. <laughs> of course he's down for that. Okay, fine. Yes, you've you've won me over. Although, <laughs> yeah. To make one more red to make one more red dwarf reference. You you said the um the in the credits you have like the the alien creature trying to eat it. Mm. I couldn't help but think of the line from Red Dwarf where Lister goes, it's a space creature, it's either going to try to kill us, eat us, or hump us. Yep. Being humped <laughs> to death by a giant space firefly. Yeah, maybe that creature in the opening credits is is just trying to hump for Cerritos. Cerritos? Cerritos? I hear it as Cerritos, but then again, I've lived here long enough that you know my accent has kind of... My accent and how I say some words has 
drifted. Well, that's the thing. I've not said the word out loud, and I've watched the show. Like, I saw the latest one yesterday, and somehow it was only reading it out loud. I was like, oh, this sounds weird out of a hmm. British voice. I just say it as Cerritos, but, like... Unlike the um, the hosts of the Great British Bake Off, I know how to say taco correctly. Ah, well, take that, Bake <laughs> Off guys. Take take that, people who get money to do this kind of thing. Yeah, badly, apparently. So this is worse than a matter of honor. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yes. I win. Catspore <laughs> is now number 13. I you win. Normally <laughs> I win. Oh, God. Right, well, <laughs> I don't know what the mission will be now, whether it'll be like nothing can be better. Unless... <laughs> um, yeah. Or if there are enough better things that you'll have to push it so that uh, Genesis ends up at number 13 or something. But yeah. No, nobody, nobody does it better. What is it going to be like once we hit 69 entries? Okay, that's when we have to find the sexiest episode of Star Trek. Okay, okay. So when we hit the point where we'll be adding enough episodes to the sixty-nine, or we just take the episode, the the episode, whatever ranking for sixty-nine, and shunt it into its own alternate universe list. So our list has a sixty-eight, then just goes straight to seventy. Oh dear. <laughs> and sixty-nine lives in its own universe as the horniest piece of Star Trek, which might be the novelization to Star Trek The Phantom, the Star Trek The Phantom Menace, Star Trek The Motion Picture. Okay. Right. <laughs> yeah, I've yet to dare to read that, but uh, who knows, maybe one day we'll do a book report on it. It's 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 horny. Oh dear. It's disturbingly horny. <laughs> and on that note, we will go from something, from mentions of something disturbingly horny to the exact opposite, I guess, with the most recent Star Trek animated series. And this is Star Trek Prodigy. For some reason, my brain keeps wanting to say Threshold. But no, that's a a very interesting episode of Voyager. Um, so yeah, Star Trek Prodigy. See, I, um, I thought you were going to say you keep thinking about X-Men. I do. I do, but that's different. Or Spider-Man, because both the Spider-Verse and the X-Men-Verse have a character called Prodigy. And as someone who owns a lot of new X-Men and almost all of the Slingers series, I am painfully aware of these. Hell, I had a pitch. I had a pitch that I wrote for a series. Wait, wait, wait. You, 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 you own Slingers? Yeah. Like the, 90, like the really bad 90s comic based on like the Spider-Man? The storyline really 90s comic that had four variant issue ones where it wasn't just variant covers it was variant interior oh oh marvel you almost deserved that bankruptcy back in the 90s yeah yeah i yeah i, I liked Chris Cross's art for it uh i was already a fan of um of Chris Cross not the musician the the comic artist but um yeah four variant interiors is is a bad idea. Anyway, this is neither about Prodigy from Slingers or Prodigy from X-Men. This is not a Marvel bankruptcy podcast. Not currently, no. Maybe one day. Like, I, I wouldn't want to uh, 
to rule it out. But for now, at least. That's our follow-up podcast, Casual Marvel Bankruptcy. Yeah, just tripped off the tongue. Anyway, anyway, back on track, back in the room. Season 1, episodes 1 and 2 of Star Trek Prodigy, titled Lost and Found. These aired on the 28th of October 2021. As of recording, we are like a a week or two away from it being a year old. It was written by Kevin and Dan Hagman, directed by Ben Hibben, and the UK and US number one hits are ones I've not heard but from artists I know, Adele's Easy On Me, and Lil Nas X's Industry Baby. Ah. Yeah. Again, don't recall either of those tracks. Uh, obviously, I know a big couple of ones from Lil Nas X, which were both good fun. And Adele's, yeah, she's good. I I find yeah. a lot of her music kind of just blends together in my brain. And that's probably more a me thing than a her thing. I like her Bond song. Yeah, yeah, it's all right. It's, it's, not, the, it's, like, it's not the best Bond song, which is Live and Let Die. Yeah. Well, but it's not, it's not. It's, but it's no, you know. At least it's not, you know, the man with the golden gun. I, I still have a, a soft spot for View to a Kill, but that's probably because I View to I a love Kill that. is awesome. It is. Uh, actually, hang on. We all know what the worst Bond song is. It's Die Another Day by Madonna. Yeah. I don't actually, I don't actually watch the Bond films. I don't like James Bond as a character. I just have views on Bond songs. Okay. Wow. Okay. Well, all right. On that statement. Uh, you have five minutes starting now, so engage. Right. Let's get it on. Prodigy, lost and found on a distant prison colony planet deep within the Delta Quadrant. Dal, a young alien boy of an unknown species, dreams of escape. Out on horizon, he spies this kind of robot alien in hiding and is approached by Dreadnought, the robot overseer of the prison, if he's seen this being. Which he has been, which has been dubbed Fugitive Zero. I will try and avoid calling him Prisoner Zero because that's a different sci-fi franchise close to my heart from Doctor Who. Fugitive Zero causes an explosion, which allows Del Boy Trotter, sorry Dal, to make an attempted escape, which fails. Important thing to note is that translators are forbidden in the prison, so all the different many alien races which are here and mining can't ever communicate to try and escape. A Kazon settles an orphan cat girl to Gwyn, the teenage daughter of the prison's lord and master, known only as the Diviner. He's in a big tube. Gwyn is unsure why the Diviner is having her doing the talking and communication and buying slaves when Dreadnought can do it. Apparently, like, she can actually speak most of the different languages. And the Diviner wants Gwyn to get Dal to locate Fugitive Zero. He's hunting for something more than Fugitive Zero, but Fugitive Zero is very important, but whatever he's really looking for, he's worried that the Federation will find them. In his cell, Dal Hill is his voice, telling him to try and keep up the hope of escaping. He's the only one who still has hope. Oh god, this is Jeff John's Star Trek. Oh no. Um, I know. And Gwyn, someone loses an arm, so it is a Jeff John Star Trek. Uh, Gwyn tries to get answers from Dal. They have a kind of a relationship, and she promises to give him food and actual conversation. Gwyn lets slip that Fugitive Zero is a Medusan, a telepathic energy being which can drive people mad if you look at it. And he does a deal with Gwyn, 
uh, to find Fugitive Zero in exchange for his freedom. He's sent down into the deep core of the mining colony, and he's buddy-systemed to a huge rock being to try and find F-Zero, and to get to the rock creature who to help him. Later on, we'll find out the rock creature's name is Rocktuck, but his little diagrams of escape doesn't work, and they cause a rockfall, which causes them to fall deeper and deeper into the planet, where they find a starship of obvious Federation design. It's smaller to ones we've seen before, but it definitely has that kind of Starfleet aesthetic. With Fugitive Zero watching them from afar, they make their way on the ship and start pressing buttons. One of these buttons activates the Universal Translator, and we now have the two characters able to speak. And for the first time, we discover that Rocktuck is actually like a small child by comparison to Dahl, who has this kind of, you know, smart-ass Aladdin, Ezra kind of quality to cool him. Cool teen! A cool, a cool edgy teen. Future Zero just pops on board and he reveals that they all need to try and escape. But to us, to pilot the ship, you need an engineer. Thankfully, they know an engineer who is, oh god, um, which is uh, Jankum Pog, which is a, a Tellarite, which are a race of beings who look kind of like Jack Black in the way they've been designed. Now they can all communicate, Zero reveals that Dull's actually done a deal to hand them all over, so they don't really have much time to make good on their escape attempt. Rocktop brings along um, Murph, which is an adorable cute blob of protoplasm who speaks, but the artificial universal translator doesn't translate it. Suddenly, Dreadnought, Gwyn, and a series of robot drones um, surround them, and Dal tries to talk his way out, but Dreadnought doesn't buy it, and takes Dal and sends him out to the outer rim of the prison, which is an area where people rarely come back from. Gwyn is starting to pull Orlando Helrissian and realizing that this deal is getting worse every time. And hang on, I missed my notes. Uh, but not. she's still helping Dreadnought and the Diviners um, with their plan by engineering a, uh, another explorer. There are a lot of sabotage attempts to help people escape in this episode. So I've kind of lost on like the third attempt here. And oh. Dal escapes. Oh, oh. speaking oh. of not losing on the third attempt. Oh, that's, that's, yeah, five minutes. Yeah. Who thought it would Prodigy that would... Uh, well, Prodigy's double do length, so we are in it basically, is. in terms of animated series, we are kind of in pilot length uh, territory for this one. Kind of, yeah. It's that thing where it was interesting to see. But yes, anyway. A lot of stuff is going on. Um, okay, so I'm going to start the stopwatch now. Dal heads back to the ship, and then Gwyn arrives, and Dal is, is trying to get her to join them so they can all escape together. Then Dreadnought arrives with his drones again. They knew the ship was here. It's called the USS Protostar, and this is what they've been mining for this entire time. How a Federation starship ended up in the core of a planet, we do not know yet. Dal tells Zero that they should use Gwyn as hostage. Um, Zero and Rocktalk think it's a terrible idea, but Jank and Pog is a Tellarite, and Tellarites love to argue. And mm -hmm. so he does the... He basically Leroy Jenkins the situation, and immediately starts punching everyone around him, and now they're getting into a big old fight. Um, Zero and the others get on board the ship and start taking it off, but unfortunately, the shields aren't working and need to reactivate the shields to get the ship working. Dal is stuck on the top of the ship with like 
a power unit to plug into the shields. Meanwhile, uh, Dreadnought turns out to have giant robot pincer legs and is now just crab walking up the ship. The protostar is flying through the inside of the planet in a way that spaceships and gravity usually don't work in Star Trek, but sod it. We're, we're operating on Kelvin rules, I think, for this show. So there we go. It's for kids. It's fun. They get the shields working just in time to knock off Dreadnought, and they finally escape into deep space, which looks like a beautiful purple gaseous nebula. They manage to take Gwyn with them, who is, I'm guessing is going to be like the Zuko of this show, and she's just kind of... Oh, she had big Zuko vibes. Big Zuko vibes. And she's just kind of tied up and looking smug that they don't know what to do. And when they mention that they need help, a hologram appears of Janeway. It turns out that she is hologram Janeway and she's ready to assist them. Back on the prison colony, uh, the Diviner has broken out of his tube and he's now naked and covered in goo. And he screams at Dreadnought to find him his ship. Wow. And time. Two minutes, 25 seconds over. I mean, yeah, you're, you're quite right in that this is definitely the longer of them. And, um, yeah, it's so I said at the start of this, I didn't fit. I didn't really get on or didn't continue much with rebels. And at first it looked, it looked a bit basic, but, um, I have a question for you. Okay. Um, have you, as you're a 40, 40, 41, uh, 42. As you're, as you're a 42-year-old man, how much in the way of kids' cartoons have you been keeping up on over the last, over like the last uh, decade or so? Out of curiosity. Uh, God, decade's a tricky thing. Like, the, I, I've watched the things that I'd associate with kind of kids' cartoons that probably aren't entirely just so like kids. Like, your Gravity Falls, your Adventure Time... Um, yeah, like your your like Avatar, Legend yeah, of Korra. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so you're kind of on the kind of same sort of level as me. Um, I've all like I've watched shows like uh, Steven Universe, which is great fun, and um, We Bear Bears, which is adorable. Which is it's heartwarming and adorable fun. So yeah, like we both come with like the same generation of kids cartoons, like your, your eighties transformers and He-Man and your brave stars and mm. your dungeons and dragons. And then all like the trippy magic roundabout weird stuff. And like this, this does suffer from like that very kind of, this is written for kids with that kind of energy and that very kind of like brash larger than life. Um, but yeah, go, sorry, I, I'm just monopolizing the conversation. Go back to you know, talking about Rebels. <laughs> yeah, so when I started watching Rebels, I knew that it was a show that is evidently, it's got a big fandom. And while it looked a bit basic and the stories were a bit basic, I could I could appreciate it and I could see where it would go. This didn't feel like as much like Star Trek as Rebels felt like Star Wars. Yeah. At least not this early on and i know you've got your janeway reveal right at the end and you've got a few bits and pieces like there's a kazon i was shocked to see a kazon and you've got some aliens yeah i definitely think that this is probably for kids whose first exposure to star trek mm. may have been the kelvin films 
it yeah. has that same kind of it has the same energy and vibe yeah it's got that kind of some of that tone and it's definitely it feels like it's got that rebels sort of energy you know to be honest if the spaceship didn't look like that and if the alien races weren't the ones that are known star trek ones it could have been just anything with any sort of alien yeah. thing and that's fine that's completely fine i'd originally seen the first half of this and i meant to see the rest just to see where it goes and didn't and didn't feel in a massive rush to i'm pleased i saw the back half of it and you know actually saw janeway actually saw uh jason manzoukas which always a joy to see jason manzoukas in a role of course he's a tellerite of course he's someone that kind of punchy he does bring some maximum derrick to the role yes and yeah you always need something like that although like it is clear like they wanted like when when they made the character i'm just thinking they wanted jack black but who could they get who wasn't jack black because like this character if the character said skidoosh i would buy it like he is definitely like a jack black type yeah, well, who knows? Maybe they'll get Jack Black to play a Telluride at some point. You know, we can we can only hope. And as someone that read a lot of the RPG content years and years ago, going, oh, Tellerites were one of the founding kind of people. Why aren't they in anything? And I know it's because the makeup looks a bit weird. But um, it's always quite nice getting to see them somewhere, even if... This is apparently the Delta Quadrant. Yeah. So it feels a little weird seeing one. And with um, Fugitive Zero, who, you know, one of the first things we hear is like, ah, yes, we should catch him. It's like, ah, Fugitive Zero is is neither him nor her. Fugitive Zero is is kind of... British. Fugitive Zero is British. Yes. He's, I think he's voiced by... um, I think. I think they're voiced by um by Ferb from Phineas and Ferb. Yeah, see that's one you've lost me on. I've got no clue who who that is. Angus William Jake Emery, which uh, I I've got to admire very, someone with almost as many names as me. We've been accused of having the most British names. Oh cool. I think he might actually beat the two of us by having the most British names. That is great. That's yeah, I'm I'm impressed. It's a name that. more British than ours. <laughs> so yeah, Fugitive Zero was an interesting one. Like a Medusan that's that tr- would drive someone mad just to look at them living in a ball. And you know, has an interesting visual design and compared to being some kind of eldritch being slash desperate fugitive, turns out to be relatively chill about this whole situation. It's like, well, yeah. uh, well I'm not when, used to having limbs. What is any of this? Yeah. When, when you're an energy being, like, you can just, like, just chill. Yeah. Yeah, apparently so. Yeah, yeah the cost, like, Dal, Dal Ra'el, I assume of the House of El, was... Um, he, he did go on about hope a lot, so quite possibly he might actually be an expatriate from the planet Krypton. Oh shit! Maybe, yeah. Again, back to Jeffrey Johns and uh, all of his all of his interference. So yeah, Dal was the weak link, being just generically lead lead kid kind of thing. He's, yeah, like Gwyn 
as you said, big Zuko energy. Always enjoy a Zuko. Rock Talk was good fun. And yeah, and of course, Jason Manzukas. And then Max some Derek. with Murph. Yeah. Both good. Both fine. Like it has, you know, it's definitely a show. It's a show written for kids. Mm. But as someone who grew up on the Transformers cartoon in the 80s, I would love to have a show where, where like, there's actual writing and drama and not just yeah. some good writers just going, yeah, I'll, I can pay, I can pay beer money with this. So, yeah, I, it's tricky. I can see some potential and I feel more enthusiastic about checking it out now than I was having just seen the first half of Lost and Found. I want to see it become something Star Trekky. And yeah. when when we first saw the promotional art, it felt very much like, what what are all these? Like, what are these things? And seeing a Tellarite, a Medusa, and seeing these kind of things, like you don't have to reference the aliens or the literal things. Like, hey, you guys know what Batlefs are. You know Troy. But as long as it gets the, the spirit and the vibe, of the exploration, the go do a Starfleet, all of that. I that would be good. I, there is a slight Trek vibe, or just in the kind of like I think the meaning of like the, like the message of the episode, which is you know, alone you can't really do anything, but if you can learn to communicate with the people who are around you, despite the fact they're different, you can you know you can form something better. Actually, that is one thing I've really liked. The idea that keep all these people imprisoned, take away their ability to communicate. That was a, that's a nice bit of like SF mm. plotting. Yeah, and you get that, especially with uh, Rock Top. The whole thing of like, oh my god, this rocky thing that you you only communicate with in growls and all that. It's like, well, actually, no, she is a, a person, even with that. And the moment you start being able to communicate, realizing, oh. Okay, yeah, this is who who this is, and you can suddenly talk amicably. And the same with uh, Jankum, as well, who distressingly does talk in the third person, which is always a sign of a terrible person. But um, you know, again, fine, fine for Jankum to talk like that because I think Jankum Pog can talk how Jankum Pog likes. Hell yeah! So um. Yeah, I think, again, similar to uh, Second Contact, it's, it's an interesting challenge to work out where this goes as far as, um, as, far as our big list. Because it's not great, and while it's got some foundations, those, founda- those like eventual results will be judged on their own merit separate to this. So, I mean, I'm definitely thinking lower half this Mm. you know it's definitely the lower of the definitely lower than um it's lower than 13 that's all i care about (laughs) of course of course so yeah i'd say it's definitely below encounter at far points it definitely feels like that feels like more of a star trek despite all the monologuing and all the talk about your job descriptions it is at least from the get-go a star trek I feel it's going to be better than Despite Yourself, the mm. uh, the the Discovery Mirror Universe, because I feel like there's a lot of talking, but not really 
anything else in terms of like this one like despite despite yourself has a lot of talking about what the values what the kind of values are and then the characters never really sort of it's more characters reacting to information and just doing stuff than like an actual sort of plot mm. and, and you know the the, the bringing like the you know you bring together these all the disparate elements of the characters well, the the fun elements of Despite Yourself, the Captain Killy of it all, are fine and fun. Yeah. But you still have a number of... They don't do a Starfleet kind like, of... There is a lot... Of, like, there is a lot of, like, flying... There's a lot of, like, flying around and... Like, this is, you know, like, like this is adventure, like, pulp sci-fi. And it's, this is Star Trek as kind of pulpiest. I did kind of like, I felt a bit sad that like they didn't try and rescue, like when they, someone brought up the idea of rescuing everyone in the, in the prison, there's like, we can't, there's so many. And I feel sad that the cat girl got left behind, but I feel that oh might my... just be like a furthering plot point. The I did not cat expect girl. that. I did not expect them to leave that child behind who, like Gwyn, yeah, she's, she's on the road to a redemption arc. But she does buy but, a child uh, early on in this. I I wonder if like that if like the cat child is going to be the replacement Gwyn because Gwyn left her behind. Oh, that would be an interesting turn to it. You know, I've only seen like the next two or three episodes after this because like life got in the way. Yeah, I kind of know like the just where it kind of goes immediately, where you have Janeway trying to train them to. Because you know she thinks they're Starfleet cadets because this, the Protostar is a training ship. Yeah. So you you have like the push and pull of Dal, you know, being like your typical. We don't need anyone. I'm the best. Dal is kind of the weak link because I think he falls into that problem that some kids' cartoons have, in which your main character also for some reason also ha- has to be like the comic relief. Oh. Fart like and to be like the the slap the the kind of like has to be both the hero and the fool. It's a it's a tricky one to balance. There, it's not like Ang in Avatar, where Ang's goofiness is at times almost the facade to kind of cover up the fact that he knows that his screwing up did kind of lead to his entire tribe being wiped out and this. The, the, the situation the world finds itself in because he didn't fulfill his duty as the Avatar, but the show then quickly makes Soka the comic relief, but also shows where Soka's strengths and positive qualities lie beyond him being the funny one. Yeah, it does an interesting balance between making fun of folks and still letting them have stories and arcs and pathos and you know emotions like it it's you know it's also like it you know it's yeah it's a you know i really hate to keep saying it's a show for kids because it feels like i'm being dismissive when like i'm just watching to a man i wish i had this show as a kid instead mm. i had a kirk and spock doing the i need the toilet run i 100 percent get that like i remember much like how these days with casual trek, I've had a couple of instances of, oh my god, I could do this. It's like, wait, no, that's not being casual enough. Like this is very good training yeah. for me to not immediately dive all in on a fandom the way that I do. 
because I've done this before. And, you know, stuff like X-Men have stuck, same with Legion of Superheroes and all that. But as a kid, yeah, I would be drawing these characters and writing little adventures or anything like that. I could 100% see myself already um, being interested in, in this world even if it would have, you know, my dad or so on Tutty and going, well, this isn't, this isn't my Star Trek. In my day, um, you know, we, you know, it feels, you know, this is one of those like, yeah, we're two people who are far closer to the 40 than either of us want to admit mm. opinions and hot takes oh. on a show, which is, I would say for like the, the nine to 15 demographic. Yeah, I'd definitely say just under ten to just over kind of thing. Like, like it's, this is, I, I think this is, this is definitely for like your avatar age group and not your adventure time age group. Although Adventure Time does go into like dark, dark, dark places. God, I one of the other things this reminds me of, and I'll be brief here because yeah, we we need to rank this on the list and and close yep. this out. This episode that i figured would be short because it's all about the animated series um i got given a preview copy of the warhammer adventures kind of warhammer for kids prose novels oh yeah yeah at uk games expo i want to say just before the uh the covid times and all that so it took me ages to read it and it's I have the audiobook of the 40k one, which I only have because it was like $4 and read by David Tennant. Oh, wow. And I'm at Palmer's like going, how do you do, how do you do 40k for kids? And that, that's how. And was that, like, yeah, that's how. Yeah, it's, it's not for me because it's Warhammer and it's for children, neither of which are, are my wheelhouse really. But again, I could see past Charlie vibing with it in a way that would be a good gateway to other Warhammer things like this leading to wanting to do other other Star Trek things and the thing I'll be really intrigued about is if like how they've made elements of lower decks canon and they're going to do a live action crossover if they refer to any of the things that are uniquely prodigy in other Star Treks Mm. going on as well that I would be intrigued to see, or whether this ends up much like the Kelvin timeline being kind of that can happen over there. Yeah. I don't know what the general reaction has been to Prodigy. Like no. everyone kind of talks like everyone kind of talks about and raves about lower decks, but I feel we only we've only had like eight episodes, I think, before the hiatus, and I get we're getting the rest of the first season in a couple of weeks. So I feel that out of like out of the the Star Trek shows we've gotten, I feel like sadly this may have had like the least impact, just simply because of just how time has worked. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, you're saying better than despite yourself. Yes. I'm saying worse than Encounter at Farpoint. So I think that means yeah that this is our new number sixteen. This is the lowest one that we've ranked out of today, but that's no slight against it because Despite Yourself is, I think, the lowest of the This Is Still Good kind of episodes yeah. or 
you know, middling to good. After that, it only gets bad with uh, Strange New World. Although, given some of the names of characters, I could imagine a character appearing in Prodigy called Grapplazorn and not having it just sound clunky. Yes. Yeah, it's definitely got that style name-wise. And again, that's something to remember with this sort of a show. You're in a universe with someone called Grapplazorn. So when you see someone called Rocktalk or Jank and Pog or Murph, look at the rest of the universe <laughs> before you judge, you know? That means our list is up to 21 entries now. That's exciting. That feels like it's it's definitely growing there. Um, that's it from us. And just remains to tell you where you can find us online. So I can be found on Twitter at charlie underscore en where i post about x-men literally every day and i've been surprisingly positive about some of the the late era dregs of the 90s so far so hopefully it'll keep up outside of that i also talk about role-playing games on who dares rolls that's been a little quiet lately but i'm hoping by the end of the year i'm going to have a video or two possibly even a written article for folks that are interested in those to check out. And on skyshark.itch.io for my comic, Explosion High, and a supplement for Wonder Home that I've written all based around my walks up in Northumberland. How about you, Mars? I am found on Twitter far too much my liking at atmanmiles. And as always, other stuff, other places where I can be found will be found, will be mentioned when I have them. Although... Um, there might be some stuff coming down in the pipeline. Ooh, exciting. Well, that's it from us. So it just remains for us to humbly ask you lot to, unlike the uh, the crew of the Enterprise in the first episode, go do a Starfleet. Live long and have a jelly baby. Goodbye. You've been listening to Casual Trek by Charlie Etheridge Nunn and Miles Reed Lobato. Music by Alfred Etheridge Nunn. Casual Trek's part of the Nerd and Tie Network. And if you want to support us monetarily, because you love what we do that much, you can now do that by going to Coffee and looking up Casual Trek. There's a link in the show notes.